for me, it's the kind of biography of, of three. It's got three main characters. You know, it's got it's got Jim Grant, Jack Reacher, and Lee Child, and two of those are fictional. He's very self-deprecating about that. In the first movie, there's a scene where uh, Reese is in a sports bar and, and five guys kind of pick a fight with him. So he takes he, he takes them outside. And, uh, right. And so when we shot that scene, um, he did a sort of spontaneous alternative take where, uh, you know, the five guys are out there. They're ringed around him in a semicircle. And he goes, one, two, three. What, you expected somebody bigger? If you're in a dispute, I have to win. And it's a, it's a burden, to be honest. Hello, welcome to a very special edition of Best Sellers. I'm Phil Williams. And I'm Natalie Jameson. And why is it so special, Phil? Because for the first time in the history of the Best Sellers podcast, <laughs> we've turned <laughs> one interview into not one but two episodes because we have the amazing Lee Child and his biographer, Heather Martin, and one very sweaty Friday night at the end of July. Speak for yourself. We, uh, it was though, wasn't it? Do you not remember? Isn't it like, don't I just, uh, what do I do? What do women do? What are we supposed to do? We don't sweat, we perspire. Glow. And dancers glow. glow. Yeah. That's what my mum yeah, was just yeah. saying. Men sweat, women perspire, and dancers glow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I would argue you don't do any of those things, even under pressure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll go with that. There you go. See, I'm well trained. <laughs> um, but yes, it was, and it was a very, um, very sultry Friday night, and we thought we'd be on this Zoom chat for probably about maximum half an hour, something because Lee's so busy, and it turned into turned into ninety minutes, didn't it? Which was incredible. Yeah, I think it was even a bit longer than that, maybe, because um, we were sort of like just chit chatting a bit at the start, um, and we mentioned this last time, but you, I think, because you have a interview relationship with Lee already so mm -hmm. which was great but you were very much like yeah this is we have to stick to the questions you know we don't want to kind of mess them around in any way not that we ever do with any of the authors obviously um but I was quite aware of that and then it was just like oh hang on a minute this is the whole Friday night great I know I know I know I know I know he was not, yeah I mean it kind of it had been explained to me that he may be pushed for time mm. And he wasn't in a rush at all, was he? Which was lovely. It was a really, really lovely chat. I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, I've, I've enjoyed everything. I've enjoyed every episode we've done. So it's not even worth going down there. What was your favorite route, is it? But in terms of just, I suppose, this one exceeded expectations because I thought his time might be pushed. And actually, so he's in um, the States and you'll hear they sort of explain Heather's in this country. And Heather's is, and he's never... This is the other extraordinary thing. No one's ever attempted or approached him to do an official biography of him. Yeah. Well, I guess that's Even... also the other thing that's probably in the back of your head, bearing in mind that you've spoken to him before and I've interviewed him a couple of times, but not as in-depth as you have. And you sort of, because he's been so prolific and obviously writing Jack Reacher for so long, um, you sort of think, well, what else can there to be asked that hasn't been yeah. heard before. Yeah, 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 but he's sort yeah. of one of those people, um, and, I, and I think Heather as well, and of course she's done so much research into his life as well, that you just felt there was so much to ask. And actually you could go for an hour and a half and then be like, hang on a minute, I still had more questions. Like, I don't think I ended up asking him, there's like a line in the book about how his daughter, I think, went to university with Lin-Manuel Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> oh right okay and I think I had that on my list to be like oh, let's just ask him like a random question about Hamilton and yeah I didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah so just to fill you in on my history with Lee um obviously in the old um job I interviewed him a number of times um I think I went up in his estimations when on one evening I surprised him with Aston Villa's 1982 European Cup winning goalkeeper and the reason I did that is because A he's a Villa fan and B he names characters in the book after Villa players so he doesn't get into any trouble with his namings he just looks at who's playing for Villa and pinches the surnames <laughs> and so I got Nigel Spink on and Spink's first question to him is why have you never named a character after me which was excellent really excellent so that was the one time then the other time I was due at Harrogate it was the year that Lee was curating the entire festival mm -hmm. 
And I was I was late. I had a bit of a traffic shocker getting to the the old Swan Hotel. Yeah, always the traffic. Saw, eh? Always the traffic. Oh, yeah. so one road in, Oof. one road out. Nightmare. Yeah, nothing else. And my phone started ringing as I was trying to follow the maps on the phone. And when I saw my producer's name on the phone, I thought, oh, that'll wait. Do you know what I mean? And I just ditched it off. And then the next thing, there's a voicemail on the phone as I'm trying to reverse the wrong way down, you know, and I completely got lost. And so I play this voicemail and it's Lee and he's nicked my producer's phone <laughs> and he's gone, Phil Williams, Lee Child, where are you? You should be here now. Where are you? I'm curating this. Why aren't you here? And it was hilarious. It was really funny. <laughs> I thought, oh no, the one time Lee Child rings you and I don't answer. Yeah. Got it. But it's probably better to get a voicemail though, because if he had answered, you'd be like, blah, blah, blah. I said, traffic. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. As I'm spinning the steering wheel frantically <laughs> trying to get out of trouble. Uh, so before we play you part one of this uh, really special episode uh, duo of Lee and Heather, uh, listeners where we didn't think we'd have them, we have one loyal listener in Jersey. Down, down, down. Jersey, you with it? Down, down, down. I know you're younger than me, but you're not that younger. Down, down, down. Yay! This is how childish your co-presenter is on this podcast, right? And we're going back about 15 years. Um, me and my friend Kibo, who you know, mm-hmm. uh, we went to a wedding in Guernsey. And we were messing about for the duration of this wedding weekend. But one of the ruses he came up with was that we were trying to convince the entire wedding party that Bergerac wasn't shot in Jersey. It was actually shot in Guernsey. <laughs> and so as we were walking through town, he'd say to me, he would interrupt an entire conversation with a group and he'd go, look, there's the bank from um, series, season two. And I'd go, oh, yeah, yeah. And then someone else would say, what, what season two? And we'd go, Bergerac. And they say, no, it's Jersey. No, it's Guernsey. And we kept it going for the entire wedding. So juicy. It was funny, though. It was very juicy. <laughs> yeah, or slightly annoying, depending on which side of the... Uh... Yeah, I was just thinking, so one listener in Jersey, I actually know a couple of people who live in Jersey. Oh, really? So they're letting you down, yeah, then? I know. Thanks. <laughs> sort of friends um so again that's ridiculous like who what sort of person would I be if I you know made all of my friends listen to my work um that's a sensible person we need the numbers (laughs) I don't want to be that person but come on Jersey up your game yeah (laughs) how many friends have you got in Jersey then two uh two yes yeah a couple I used it in the correct use of the word so, so it could be that our one registered listener could be that couple no I mean, it's not a couple it's like a couple as in uh, the number two so separate oh uh, right so it's not like i was trying to be generous to your friends no, thinking they might be sat around a smart speaker and no no but it could individuals be like who knows mm. yeah you're gonna find out now will you <laughs> tell us next episode yeah. <laughs> will you send out a t- send out a text to jersey no i will no i think it's really embarrassing because one of them's somebody I went to school with so I don't speak to her that often and the other one's um a school mum who moved away a couple of years ago so I think it'd just be really random if I was like hi so remember me are you listening to my podcast like who does that uh no I I won't be reporting back on this one Do you know what though? Every time we have these little preambles, right? Yeah. You, you give away a little I nugget. No, every time. Which, which I find fascinating. So, do you know what the, today's nugget was no, that you just it? gave away? There? So, do you remember a couple of episodes ago when you told us that you'd actually fallen out with this school gates WhatsApp group? Uh, yeah. And yet yeah. now you've just told us you've kept in touch with a mum who left the school. Mm, yeah, two children, two different year groups. Uh, these yeah. are from different clans. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, uh, got it. <laughs> so tribal isn't it this world <laughs> tell me about it yeah it is um i think we should probably shut up and let everybody enjoy uh, the delights of lee child and heather martin one of our guests today on bestsellers has sold over 100 million books so the other guest decided she'd write one about him both as audacious as each other we welcome heather martin and Lee Child to bestsellers. How are you both? Doing well, thanks. Great, thanks. Nice, nice to be here. Good to see Heather, you. Heather, I want to start. It's really good to see you, Lee. It's really, it's been a while. It has, and, and it's, I'm, I'm sorry, delighted. sorry, it's not in person, but that's uh, 2020, isn't it? Yeah, that's COVID 19. Yeah, you. Where, where are you both actually at the moment? Where are we speaking to you I'm from? I'm in London. I'm in Wyoming, uh, USA, which is uh, just nice. where the Rocky Mountains start, and it's the perfect place for social isolation because you have absolutely no choice. Nobody lives here. 
And, and just um, have you shrunk since I last saw you, or are those pencils behind you massive? <laughs> they're, they're massive. They're a tribute to, and Heather knows this. Uh, the the very first book was written with a yellow pencil, and so this is my office in Wyoming, and so I got these giant pencils. They're five feet long. <laughs> Um, yellow, the same color as the original pencil, and it reminds me of you know where it all came from. Nice, Heather. How long have you known Lee, and when did you first think it would be a good idea to try and write his biography? <laughs> well, that's the kind of funny. Should ask me how long I've known him because I need to remind Lee that I've known him five years today. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> so we we met five years ago in New York on the 24th of July, as it happens. So there you go. And um, I guess I got the idea for the biography pretty early on. I mean, obviously I'd read all the books already way before meeting him, some of them more than once. And um, so I, I knew the stories. And then when I met him, you know, he started telling more stories. And uh, we kind of, um, uh, around 2000, late 2016, I probably had the idea. Uh, probably didn't float it to Lee till more or less in 2017. He took some persuading. But, uh, you know, it's basically the stories he was telling, the ones he was writing, the ones he was, you know, speaking. Mm. And, and also that great kind of um, story of self-reinvention in the middle of his life, you know. Uh, for me, it's the kind of biography of, of three. It's got three main characters. You know, it's, got, it's got Jim Grant, Jack Reacher and Lee Child. And two of those are fictional. So, <laughs> Jack Reacher is, a, is a, I, I would say that, you know, Jack Reacher is a great fictional character, but he's not the greatest of Lee's fictional characters. That's Lee Child himself, really. So that's my claim anyway. <laughs> would you agree with that? Well, Lee? I mean, I was hostile to the whole uh, proposition. You know, the reason <laughs> Phil and I get on well, for instance, is that we're no nonsense Midlanders. And... Phil will readily understand that if anybody from the Midlands is asked, do you want a biography? Your 100% answer is, no, I don't, because you sound like a pretentious git. And uh, <laughs> everybody thinks, you know, what's interesting about my life, really? Nothing. But what eventually I really wanted to do, and again, I think Phil would understand this, is that you know, I, I'm, I'm older, older than all of you. And I, I was born in the old world where regionalism and class was a thing. It limited your horizons. It was a different world completely. And not just me, but lots of people like me managed to somehow get out of that. And I wanted Heather to look at that, especially because she's not English. Uh, Heather comes from Australia. And so she's looking in at this British class system and the regionalism and the, the horizons that for some people are very narrow and for other people are very broad. She's looking at all of that from an outsider's perspective. And I thought that would be helpful, not just really a biography about me, but a biography of a kid from the Midlands who managed to do something more than he was supposed to do. Um, and there were a lot of us battling against that. I mean, you. you even for a young chap like Phil, you must you must have felt a bit like that. You must have remembered that. Well, see, what's really interesting about hearing you say that, and I think school-wise, there's probably about 20 years between us yeah. in, in when we were at school, but you went to King Edward's school, the NH Baston, which was the main one in the foundation, and I went to King Edward's Aston. And uh, the only distinction being that mine was non-fee paying, but it was still 11-plus entrance exam. But still very much the attitude from the teaching staff to the boys was, you are in the top 1% of the country. And so the pressure wasn't so much I felt to get out of the Midlands situation, but it was to achieve what the teachers were telling us we should be achieving because of this 1% nonsense diatribe, really, that we were being fed all the way through from first form right through to sixth form. Yeah, I mean, that, that 20 years was crucial, though, because 20 years before that, we were told it was assumed you know at king edwards in edgebaston it was assumed that you would go on to probably lead the empire or something like that with mm. you know conveniently forgetting that the empire had been over already but the <laughs> the, the attitude was still there and it was that old-fashioned attitude that in um, partly it said yeah if you work hard you can be anything but written between the lines it was saying no you can't because you're you know you're a lower class kid from the midlands you're not really going to go very far and that it was 50 50 part of it was optimistic and part of it was pessimistic 
the, the know, other part can... I encountered was uh, sorry Heather was the on the creative okay. side of it doing it doing a creative job I did my first work experience was at 15 on the Sutton Coalfield News and at the end of two weeks I managed to get a front page story printed and I remember saying to the editor have you done this because it's my last day and the editor said to me I'm running a newspaper so I'm not a fucking charity and he walked <laughs> out <laughs> and, and I thought oh, okay so maybe I've got something at this and then at school six form in careers interviews, they were like, have you got a plan B? And everything was, everything was don't go into a creative trade. Did you, I, mean, I don't suppose if you knew that you wanted to be in a creative trade, you must have done because at university you were producing and bringing plays to life. Yeah, I always knew I would do the creative thing. And I, and actually I found the, the Birmingham attitude very helpful for that because the lack of pretension and the attention to detail and the manufacturing, because if you're doing entertainment, I mean, basically you're manufacturing a product and you've got to do it well and skillfully and you've got to have the end user in mind and so the nuts and bolts of it I, I actually I found very helpful that you're doing a job and you do it in that Birmingham way you do it uh, well with no drama and uh, if somebody compliments you you sort of uh, look a bit awkward and shuffle off yeah <laughs> that's true I very much tried to take a leaf out of Lee's book in that regard. And I know he says, you know, there are advantages to me being an outsider, but to an extent I can really empathize with you guys as well, because let's face it, as an Australian, you know, some many of the same assumptions, you're not expected to, to go far, except to cross the ocean to come and join you guys, you know? So I can identify with a lot of that, but also in, in, in as much as, you know, I, I kind of really tried to, um, or, learn from Lee's attitude to his work and so I tried to you know treat what I was doing as basically as a job that I wanted to do well and that I wanted to craft you know um, as carefully as I could and also I think the sense of possibility because Lee you, you always said that in in your day and again maybe this is a difference from between you and Phil in your day you never had any anxiety about getting work whatever that work might be you never had any anxiety about getting a job you know you knew you were going to get a job it might not, not be the job that your teachers uh, you know dreamed of you getting or your parents wanted for you but you knew you were going to be employed it did. It was a it, it was a different generation altogether, and I feel kind of embarrassed saying so in front of young people today. But I was a uh, you know a mediocre student at school, and I was a mediocre student at university. Didn't really pay much attention. Just had a really great time. It took me four years to do a three year degree, but even so. Uh, it was inevitable that I would get a job. It was impossible that I would not get a job. And I remember finishing university and then just sort of skiving off for a few weeks, uh, watching Wimbledon and all that kind of thing. And then I remember one day thinking, oh, I better get a job. So I just uh, looked at whatever newspapers were lying around the flat and I found three jobs that I, I thought would be reasonably good fun. And I applied to them all and I was offered them all. And that's how it was back then. And it's impossible to communicate that to young people today because it's so different now. But that's how it was. If, if you went to university, you were guaranteed to get a job. The one you really wanted, you didn't really apply for though. You just told them you were gonna turn up. <laughs> well, I, there, there was one. I'm on my way, I'm coming, You're the, I'm the man. <laughs> there, there was, it was one of those ads, you know, it was an, a, a paper that was about four days old at that point, it was hanging around on the dining table and there was an ad in it for assistant transmission controller at Granada TV in Manchester. And the way that, you know, the little paragraph about what the job entailed, I just knew it. I, I knew exactly what I would be doing. <laughs> and I knew I'd be good at it because it was similar the stuff I'd done before so yeah basically I just wrote to them and said all right I'll uh you know I'm your guy I'll be there yeah and then um and the interview was uh plain sailing you know I, I'd, I'd I'd interpreted what I would be doing and I, I knew I could do it and and it was a I was full of confidence and it was a great interview until the very end when they said are there any questions that you would like to ask us and I said no I think we've covered it all basically and they said, don't you want to know the salary? And I thought, you know, I'd, I'd just been like, I assumed it would be some entry level salary and I'd be struggling. So I said, yeah, what's the salary? And they told me and I nearly fell off my chair. I thought, what? It was beyond my wildest dreams. You know, as a kid that age, I thought if I could ever earn a hundred pounds a week, then that would be clover, you know, that game over at that point. And the salary they offered was more than that. And I thought, what? And from that point on, I said, yeah, I really want this job. 
and uh, I got it and it was great. And I, I, I earned more than hundred pounds a week. And back then, you know, that was a lot of money. I was going to say that, and weirdly, despite your sort of stratospheric earnings as the Ricci guy, it was actually at Granada, if I'm not mistaken, that you, you know, because of all the rules and regulations, the union rules and regulations and the overtime, this and the whatever, that, that you actually had your biggest payday ever in terms of, you know, uh, pounds per second, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, it was a union shop and it was the sort of end of, uh, you know, the union movement. And we were, uh, you know, not particularly aggressive or greedy about it. It was a, a machine that ran just ran by itself but there was a complex rule book and there was a rule I still remember it rule 10j which said that if you are already working overtime on a bank holiday and the overtime is extended spontaneously you got this fantastic multiple of your hourly rate for your last hour and added to that was if you went into an hour even by one second if you passed the top of the hour even by one second you got paid for the whole subsequent hour and Channel 4 overrun one night and uh, by maybe 11 seconds or 12 seconds or something like that. So I got a whole hour at this outrageous multiple. And I think I earned a thousand pounds for that one, for that 11 seconds work. And that probably still is the best rate of pay I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I'm sure Phil probably explained this uh, to you as well. Um, but I just wanted to reiterate that the reason why Phil and I decided to start doing this podcast was because we both have a real aversion to any type of snobbery in the book world and how uh, people can look down on certain types of books or hold, you know, particularly literary fiction up to some high regard, but often I feel without proper scrutiny sometimes. Um, and I get obviously that sense throughout this book, The Reacher Guide, that, you know, I think people will know that that's a, a sort of lifeblood of you as well, Lee, how, how kind of much of that is at your core still to try and do you want to try and fight any book snobbery or are you just kind of done with it and you feel like you've proved everything anyway? He's transcended. Uh, I, I mean, it fascinates <laughs> me as, as a, uh, just as a theory or a belief somehow that uh, if, if, if you're making something that will appeal to a very large amount of customers, that is somehow easier than doing something that will appeal to a very mm -hmm. small amount of customers. Um, to me, that logic is completely the wrong way around. You know, with an industrial background, like you see happening in the Midlands, um, it's a lot harder to design a car that a million people are going to buy than it is to design a Rolls Royce that 2,000 people are going to buy. Because you can sell anything to 2,000 people. They'll, they'll buy anything and they'll pay whatever you want. But the mass market is ruthless. They want a good product at a good price. And so the idea that literary fiction is somehow harder is, is bizarre to me. And, and the serious point, the responsibility that the author bears in the literary world, if you read a novel and you are not entirely satisfied with it, it, it doesn't grab you completely. First of all, as a literary reader, you expect that. No literary reader is ever 100% happy with a book. You know, if you're 85% happy, you're delighted with that. If, if, it's, if you're not liking the book, you put it down and you start the next one because you're a habitual reader. But in our genre, our audience is not habitual. If you give them a bad book that they don't like, they may never read again. They may never read another book mm. because there's so many alternatives uh, in the mass market. They may just think, oh, reading is not for me. So the responsibility on a mass market author is a lot, is a lot higher. It's very difficult to satisfy a large number of people. And th the consequences of disappointing them are terrible. And, and Natalie, I think there are quite a few signs of that in, in the language that Lee uses um, around his own work that uh, you know he, mm -hmm. he always right at the end of the biography he was still saying to me I don't think of myself as a novelist I think of myself as a storyteller and if ever I use the word author he would say I don't like the word author I'm a book writer you know I produce I produce books and 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 actually the editor said to me you know shouldn't this just be author and I said no it can't be author it's got to be book writer a writer of books the book is a product you know and I, I noticed mm -hmm. that you know Lee and Lee uses probably one of the only 
book writers around to use the word customer when he's talking about his work. You know? <laughs> this is also a whole different discourse. And I think that, that mm. you know, you've internalized that so completely, Lee, that um, it's, it's one of the things that's very distinctive about you as a writer and as, a, and as I would say as a person too. Well, the other thing that annoys me about that whole argument is that, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the popular writers who are keeping the trade going, there would be nowhere for these literary writers to go, you know, who would publish them? <laughs> it's people like me, I'm not saying me specifically, but people like me and dozens and hundreds of others who actually keep the trade ticking over. And that allows space for the, the literary writers who are selling a few hundred or a few thousand copies. They, uh, and my, my quote is that they are barnacles on our boat. They are, <laughs> I'm perfectly happy for them to ride along and uh, good luck to them. But I get cross when they start telling me that they're better than me or smarter than me or their product is better than mine. Their product is great, but it is um, so specialized and for, for such a tiny audience, how can you go wrong actually? Yeah, it's kind of funny hearing you say that actually because when you were just talking to Phil about class and growing up in that system, in a sense, there's a whole class system still going yeah. on in fiction yeah. and how people view it. and who's allowed to do Yeah, what? well, uh, 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 but happily, I think that is changing a tiny little bit because I've been, uh, as you know, this year, I've been a judge for the Booker Prize. So I've read 150 Booker-type books this year. And uh, there still is a lot of the old nonsense going on, but there is plenty, plenty, <laughs> plenty of new writers who are uh, really getting into it from a whole different perspective. I mean, we have this large conversation in, in the business about access, who has access to, mm -hmm. to uh, write and be published and so on, or even work in publishing. And that is happily, it's changing a little bit. In those 150 books, there were lots and lots of solid new perspectives from uh, working class people and people of color and uh, women and I'm really really encouraged actually that we've been going through this long long process in society generally uh, all my lifetime really since uh, the 1950s where women and uh, people of color have been fighting for their access to what was definitely a white man's world when I was born they've, they've been fighting for that access for two or three generations now and I mean, let's let's all agree there's still a long, long, long way to go. But let's also agree we've come a long way. We've made a lot of progress. And we're uh -huh. seeing that progress now, especially in the literary world. Ten years ago, even, certainly 20 years ago, there was a kind of unspoken thing uh, where people would think of themselves as women writers or black writers or whatever. Now, it seems to me that between the lines, they're saying, fuck that, I'm a writer and they are, they are claiming mm -hmm. access. So I think the literary world is gonna be a lot more exciting actually in the next decade or so. I think maybe we'll get rid of all that fusty, dusty old stuff and we will see a whole bunch of new perspectives. And uh, I've loved the book of reading. I mean, it is really amazing what people are coming up with in the literary world. And it, with a bit of luck, it will improve. Has he got to the head banging together stage yet with the other judges? <laughs> We've been, it's a bunch of five judges and I love them all. I mean, the problem with the, with the virus is that we've never been all together. We, you know, we, we've yeah. done it all by Zoom. And so I wish I could have got to know them all a little bit better because they're a fascinating bunch. And yeah, there's been a there's it's very polite and very restrained. But yeah, the polite <laughs> and restrained version of banging heads together. Yeah, yeah. we've done a yeah. lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, did you want to come in there? Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think I'm a bit of an example of, of what Lee was talking about and what Natalie was talking about. That, um, you know, and I think you used, did you use the word audacious at the beginning did, or yeah. something like that? Yeah, I mean, I kind of seized my opportunity there. You know, I thought this is a book whose time has come. This is a guy who, you know, who, who deserves it, um, the respect that he has in the industry, the status that he has in the industry, I thought, I can do it, you know, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, I was persistent. I did have to talk him into it. But, you know, I think he came around in the end. I think um, it was also kind of weirdly interesting for him to read it eventually. And it was. I, think, I mean, I, I mean, one of the other things <laughs> that, uh, one of the other reasons, though, I guess, that I said, yeah, was I'm fascinated by memory. 
you know, we, we all are sure that we remember certain things. I mean, there are many things that I'm sure I remember. And then all of a sudden it occurs to you, wait a minute, we didn't even live in that house then. Uh, and <laughs> your whole basis is wrong. And so I would say that I remember my life fairly well, but Heather has gone around and actually talked to these people. And certain things happened that I have no recollection of. Things that I'm sure happened apparently didn't happen. And I've been, <laughs> I've been very fascinated by that. Well, that's, to, yeah, to, that's one of the things I found fascinating about it, Heather, is that, and I mean, the story that stands out to me is from Granada, Lee, where I can't remember the precursor, but Rob, <laughs> who you worked with, says, oh, that's bollocks. He wouldn't say that if he was here. <laughs> there was a lot of head banging around that yeah. story. But the thing is, with the, and perhaps Lee will want to tell that story because it's, it's a great story. Uh, you know, story being the operative word. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I think the thing about memories, to a certain extent, I was faithfully recording Lee's memories. I mean, you know, I was really taking note of what he said and paying attention to detail and writing it all down and trying to reproduce it. And many of the words in the biography are his words as they were spoken to me or his words as he's written them. But I guess to another, you know, I was also um, reminding him of certain memories, perhaps, yeah, questioning one or two of them that have been, that have become mythified over the years because of the job that Lee does, I think, as much as anything. And also to a certain extent, kind of reconstructing some of them, you know? And, and that was, it was, yeah, really fascinating experience to talk to people that, um, I think, you know, some people that Lee had, well, entirely lost touch with. He, you know, he gave me a couple of names to get me started. Not many, wasn't really, really helpful in that regard, but, you know, I've- He made you be a detective. Yeah, but I found that, you know, <laughs> one name, quickly led to another. And uh, he was also skeptical that people would want to talk about him or that they would be interested. Oh, they won't want to talk about me. They won't be interested. They won't remember me. Um, and of course he, he was wrong on every single account. They did want to talk about him. Even though some of them didn't know at the point I contacted them that he was Lee Child. They, they, didn't, know, they, they didn't know about it. It wasn't, it wasn't just Lee Child, you know, the sort of great bestseller that they wanted to talk about they really wanted to talk about Jim Grant you know yeah, 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 yeah. and that was what I found that was what I found fascinating as well you know and also for me getting to know because I met Lee as Lee um but you know I did get to know Jim Grant and now I I, I, can, I, I can well Heather what's really interesting about that is that uh, Natalie said to me how do you refer to him and I said well I've only ever known him as Lee so I call him Lee and she was like I don't know if it's yeah. him Lee or Jim and uh, after reading this book I think it's more clouded isn't it I'm not sure who but I know I've adapted I can, I can I can segue between them just like he does you know and I've seen him do it and it's, it's that's kind of a fascinating thing in itself you know Father, you feel and I've been that, with him you... I've been with him when he's signed two different ways in one really? day you know yeah yeah yeah, part of it, so I, I mean, part of it uh, about the memory thing was that, uh, I, I, that, I mean, I love Rob, it's Rob Reeves we're talking about. <laughs> I mean, absolutely my best friend. The, from, love is, the love is true. Yeah, you know, from that period, we were very, very close in a very existential way and for many, many years. And I love, I love him dearly. Uh, but. And part of the problem is that I've been doing these uh, public appearances, as you know, for 20, mm. 20 plus years, and you're standing up there on stage and you, you can't tell the story exactly because it's just, you know, you can't say, well, my mother's cousin knew this guy who lived in the next street. Yeah. Who knew the, <laughs> you, you know, you squeeze it all up, you gloss it together. And uh, what happened to your mother's cousin's neighbor's best friend happens to you. <laughs> uh, it's just a method of storytelling at these events. And so, once you've done that year after year, you do lose track about what actually happened. But the, the incident in question was, uh, <laughs> was partly like that. I mean, I tell the story, I say it was a, Granada was a great place to work. In my first week, I, I did this or that. And it wasn't actually my first week because the training process was complicated. You did about two or three months in the office and you did various <laughs> other things. And then you went down for the operational training. So it was like, one week after my operational training started. But that's too complicated to tell on stage. So you just say in my first week. And we had this lunch. But I know to do it all down, you the, see. The, <laughs> yeah, and I was aware of that, you know, in the latter years when I knew Heather was there taking notes, I was thinking, I'm not being strictly accurate here, but I am, you know, I'm on stage telling a story. But the, <laughs> the, the story that Rob, didn't believe was one that, uh, you know, this, this woman who was training me took me to lunch with these actors that were her friends. Uh, she said, we're gonna lunch with four actors. And so I said, great. 
And it turned out to be Laurence Olivier, John Gielgud, Ralph Richardson, and Alec Guinness. And uh, I mean, absolutely that is true. My, my memory, uh, you sit in, we were sitting cross-legged on a studio floor with picnic baskets with her and these four guys. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to forget that. <laughs> <laughs> but Robin, and I think to a certain extent, Heather and, and other people started looking through Granada Productions. When were those four actors ever together? And they couldn't find a reason for them ever to be together. So they disbelieved the story. But I, I think... I believed, I believed. I think that's faulty thinking. Olivier was definitely there. <laughs> and I already knew Olivier because we had, uh, I had been a, a sort of trainee, a sort of what they would now call intern at the Birmingham Rep where he, the new rep, when the new rep opened, uh, he did a, a guest season as director. And I was there as a lowly underling. So we hadn't met. And uh, I'm, if Olivier is at Granada, I think he was doing King Lear or something like that. And if he calls up his mates and says, come for lunch, <laughs> they will come, even though they don't have a job there, they're not working there, they're not playing a part, they will just show up because they're his friends. And so it, it, again, it kind of fascinated me that nobody thought of that possibility. They were not there working, I, they were there to have lunch with Larry. And with you, and with you. But I can see that entirely, but you know, you, you will appreciate, Phil, that I had to include that story just for the beauty of, yeah, of yeah. Rob saying bollocks, yeah, you know, yeah. you've never thought of and, and also And also the fact that, you know, that moment, I remember that moment so clearly myself, I was in Kirby Lonsdale where Lee used to live, that's where Rob and I met. And, we both, there was stunned silence for a moment and we sort of looked at each other and I couldn't help remembering what Lee tells his audiences, has told them time and time again. Oh, you know, if you say something with sufficient confidence, people will believe you. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously, not only was there Rob's skepticism, but there was that sort of sense of, hang on, this is exactly what Lee says he does, you know? Yeah, but, so obviously, but Rob, it's, a, it's tricky. Rob said when he was driving home from talking to you, he started to think, yeah, maybe I do remember. He did, he did, he did, and that's he what did. fascinated because he loves you so dearly. Because he loves you so dearly. The nature, yeah, the whole memory thing. The nature of memory. Mm. It's a weird, weird thing. And I, some of the stuff that other people are saying, I don't remember at all. Um, but I, I was incredibly touched and incredibly gratified. And I mean, I nearly burst into tears that people remember me from 50 years ago. They remember. They know. remember what I was like. They liked me. They care. They care. Yeah, I was over mm, absolutely overcome. Well, well, and privately, I don't care if the book ever gets published. I don't care if it ever sells a copy. But to have heard that from from people that I knew long ago, I was that is enough for me. That was just lovely. Oh, that's wonderful. Can I just say that I also found the experience very moving and I also came to care a lot about all those people I was speaking to and maybe I was therefore overly respectful to say Rob or whatever, but I, they, I loved their voices and I loved the stories they were telling me and the memories they were sharing with me and that sense of how much they cared for this, you know, for their but old friends. But it made friends. me sad. And so I, I just found the whole experience very moving. The passage of time made me sad because I saw Rob a few years ago. Uh, I was up in the north of England and so I... I drove over there and we had lunch and Rob was in the when I knew him the most progressive guy the most avant-garde guy always into something that was eight steps ahead of anybody else and that's what made him so fascinating and lovable but and I saw him and he'd kind of he'd given up he said um, I hate the modern world I, I live entirely in the past and I, I feel a little bit like that too. You know, I'm, yeah. I, I'm getting to that point. Yeah, so many things. And it's- Perfect for a biographer. What it's, and it's critical for a writer, <laughs> in my opinion, that I used to feel, even maybe five years ago, I used to feel that you could parachute me into anything, anywhere. And within five minutes, I would have figured it out. And within the next five minutes, I would be the boss of it. And I can't do that anymore. I just don't understand certain things anymore. I don't feel certain things. I don't get it anymore. There, uh, it, modern life is moving ahead of me at a, at a faster pace than I'm moving. And I think it's very critical to a writer to spot that moment and recognize it and say, yeah, you know, the world is leaving me behind. Well, we'll, we'll get on to how you've dealt with that in a moment, I'm sure. But um, I want to tell you both, uh, my personal reaction to this book that I read, because um, what, what it starts off and I'm thinking, hang on, I'm, I'm reading a Reacher book, but it's not, Jack's not in it. It's, it's Lee that's in it. 
and then you get these accounts as you describe these wonderful accounts from your friends and people who are in your life from school days right the way through to, to now and then it, re- it becomes a bit more like this is your life the old tv show yeah which i really loved as well and then i thought because i know you both a little bit i thought hang on has lee conspired with heather here to bring us a story <laughs> about lee and actually how much of this is true i genuinely thought for oh, a minute no. i genuinely thought you were you'd pulled the greatest trick off since the devil persuaded people he didn't exist yeah i mean the I felt that uh, Heather did really well in making it a story. I mean, it is a narrative. Mm. It starts somewhere and it goes somewhere, and it is narratively very strong. But yeah, we actually conspired to make it as true as possible. Because yeah, if, we, we, if we, you're going to do it, we did. You know, let's do it. And um, so the warts and all thing. You know, there are bad there are bad things in there. You know, I I was a terrible shoplifter. I I was perpetually broke uh, you know as a, i was a poor kid no money in that in that environment where i went to school with a mixture of people some of who were very rich and some were richer than me and i i felt i had no money so i stole i shoplifted all the bad things are in there as well so we really did we tried to keep it honest but of course no no biography can be truly complete but i think this one I, you know, I've read the drafts and uh, I think I got away with a few things that she never found out about, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but all that I chose not to talk yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> the rest you know of what, it, Lee, I, I, I remember the first time I interviewed you and the, it was the first time I interviewed you was the first time I'd read a Reacher, right? And one of the things that struck me, I remember this vividly, uh, being a first reader, was how brilliantly choreographed the fight scenes are. And I remember saying to you, how, how do you do that? How have you achieved that? Who have you spoken to? And you said, it's all from my imagination. And you were quite coy about it. And now it turns out you were knifing kids in class. <laughs> and, you, you know, I mean, when was the last time you kicked the shit out of somebody? <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> and that is another thing where memories differ, uh, but quite explicably, because, you know, when I went to school, primary school it was still the era where there was a boys playground and a girls playground right. and so heather has talked to some of the girls uh, that knew me since i was like <laughs> four years old and they he was so polite they don't believe about the fighting and so on but they never saw it because <laughs> they were segregated into their i don't know what they did skipping or something what we did was <laughs> knife fights and bricks and stuff like that and they, yeah. they didn't see it so they doubt it but it's true and, and literally i've got the scars to prove it and when was the last time that you gave someone a kicking oh god not all that long ago actually well about seven years now actually 2013 i have seen the photo yeah 2013 it was the last time i actually had a, a physical fight um and uh I, I sustained a little bit of damage in it um that told me maybe i'm getting too old for this the other guy went to hospital uh i i had a terrible terrible cut on my eye that uh I, I mean, it was very late at night, so I went home and I, I, I went to sleep. And still seven years later, I can't get the blood stain out of the pillowcase. But uh, <laughs> I, got, I got up the next morning and I happened to see my daughter, who, uh, who also lives in New York. And she said, uh, Dad, you've got to go and have that stitched. And I wasn't going to, but she made me go. So I went. it cost me $1,000 for eight stitches in, in that eye. But that was the last fight I've had. And... Uh, I, you know, now I'm going to try and stay away from it because we should uh, explain you were coming to someone's rescue. Yeah, you, yeah, sorry. it was, uh, it was one, it was a Reacher moment. You know, I write Reacher. Any writer really writes about themselves, and I, I cannot stand uh, bullying or injustice. And I was walking. It was about five o'clock in the morning. I was coming home from some party, and I was walking up Lower Broadway, and. Uh, Across the street, a cab stopped in a panic, and the cab driver jumped out, a little tiny skinny Hindu guy, like a lot of New York taxi drivers are. And his problem was he had this drunken frat boy in the back of the cabin, and he was about to throw up. And if if a cab has a passenger that throws up, it's a disaster because he, he's off duty the rest of the night. You know, he has to go and have his steam cleaned and all of that because the police are very uh, focused on taxi standards in New York. 
And so this tiny little Hindu cab driver was trying to get this frat boy out the back and the frat boy was slapping at him and so on. And so I thought, well, I'm not gonna stand for that. So I crossed the street and grabbed the guy by the collar and hauled him out of the cab. And he hit me in the face. And so then I, I you know, in that split second, I- That was enough. Yeah, was enough. I was that nine year old again from Hansworth. And uh, so I, I, I worked him over and, uh, left him on the sidewalk, the cab driver drove off and I walked home. But yeah, it was on behalf of somebody else. But I'm always like that. I cannot stand uh, big, arrogant people exploiting or disrespecting other people. Uh, that's the one thing I hate. And it's funny when you, no, it's okay. I was just gonna say, I'll keep it brief, but it's funny when you read the books, you recognize these little moments, whether he does works them in consciously, unconsciously, I don't think is, is really the point. But even that little detail about his, his daughter wanting him to get stitches, wanting him to see a doctor, which you know, he's very averse to seeing a doctor. Um, I can see that make me now. I can see that there's, a, there's this moment, you know, <laughs> where Chang wants Reacher to see a doctor, unheard of, I mean, you know. Uh, and I, I, you know, that was, not long after that kind of um, yeah, that it's something you've done brilliantly. Is you've married those Reacher moments with real life Lee moments. Uh, well, that's great. Thank you very much. I'm so glad. <laughs> Go, Natalie. I interrupted you. Yeah, and yeah. Well, no, I was, I was going to say pretty much the, the same thing, really. I, I feel like you get that sense that you're not somebody who suffers injustice in that way at all, Lee. And, but also there's a thread that's so strong throughout the book about how you need to win. <laughs> and so I wonder if those two things like combined in that moment, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to oh. win. <laughs> I'm going to like show <laughs> that yeah, this is not fair. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that is, uh, you know, that is something that I've seriously considered in my life, you know, that, that compulsion I have to win and it's actually a terrible thing it, 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 I suppose it's a sub subdivision of what they call toxic masculinity now or whatever um, you know growing up where I did when I did you have to win uh, there's no alternative and so and the stress and the tension and the amount of energy that it takes to do that constantly is is a handicap it's a handicap and I wish mm -hmm. I wasn't like that but but I am it doesn't sit very well with being a Villa fan, though, does it? <laughs> well, you know, that's a great point, Phil, because years and years ago, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years ago, Men's Health magazine asked me to write a column for them. And, you know, what do you write? I, I don't care about health. I, I, uh, you know, I don't do weightlifting. I'm not a gym rat. I don't do any of those men's magazine things. So I wrote about football, where... The attraction for me, and maybe the villa is perfect for this, is that it's something that you deeply care about, but you can't do anything about it. It is not your responsibility. It is not your fault. It's almost the, the inverse of, of what Natalie said. You know, I'm driven to win. So if I was playing football, I would be totally miserable if I lost. But if you're, a, if you're just a fan, it is not your fault. Uh, and it's the only thing in my life that is not my fault. Uh, so you're not superstitious then? I'm not superstitious, particularly. I mean, I've tried to be superstitious once or twice. I mean, I remember very well. For the, for the Villa. Yeah, I remember very yeah. well <laughs> driving down to Leicester. Uh, Villa were playing Le at Leicester when, back in the day when uh, Gary Lineker still played for Leicester. And Villa were, were uh, away at Leicester and I was driving down and uh, on the way, I said this stupid thing to myself, if the Villa win, I will quit smoking. And uh, <laughs> so I got to the ground, they lost 5-1. And so I, I still smoke. But it, it's not my fault. It's the only part of my life that I do not have responsibility for. And in a way, I find that comforting. Because especially with the Villa, you know, you're up and down all the time. We've, we've hit the dizzying heights. And we've bumped along the miserable bottom and uh, it's been a roller coaster it's part of it has been great part of it has just been awful and uh, it is the, the only thing in my life where I don't have direct responsibility but you do learn that I said this I was invited back to my old school at Edgebaston to give a, a talk at Founders Day or something and and I just, he's so respectable now I decided to <laughs> You know, you get asked that question, you know, what would, if you could meet yourself as a teenager, what would you tell yourself? Yeah. And my uh, first comment was lesson number one, the villa will always break your heart. 
Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, have you? Uh, I've got to tell you, have you heard Frank Skinner's story about the Albion, which kind of sums up the Midlands attitude? Where it's a really horrible day at the Hawthorns, and they're losing four-one at home. And this was in the days where, and I'm sure you remember this, Lee, they used to announce births over the tunnel. Yeah. Remember this at the football yeah. grounds? So uh, the final whistle, the tunnel announcer says, thank you to the 19,200 and whatever who've attended the Hawthorns today. And by the way, congratulations, Mr. So-and-so, so-and-so, your wife's just given birth to a brand new baby boy. And Skinner says, the bloke next to him nudges him and says, poor bastard. Come here and watch this lot lose four one. Now he's got to go home and make his own tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's another, That's just so Midlands. Isn't it? There's another Midlands joke where you get into you get to the cup final and you go and there's uh, you know packed stadium obviously, but right in front of you, there's a guy sitting next to an empty seat, and uh, you know why is there an empty seat at the cup final? So you tap the guy on the shoulder and say, "What's going on?" And he says, "Well, it's for my wife. You know, we've been to every cup final ever." Uh, so you say, well, where is she? Well, she died. And you, and you think, oh, dear, you know, I'm very sorry to hear that. But uh, it, didn't you have a friend or something like that you could have given the ticket to? And he says, oh, no, they're all at the funeral. Oh. <laughs> That's so awful. <laughs> so I, I'm kind of glad that didn't get into the biography, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see, like, obviously, I know you've got, um, you've got your daughter Ruth as well, Lee. When you, when you, when she was younger, did you play Monopoly and things like that? Did <laughs> well, you always have to win? Well, it's different when you're a dad, you know. You got to, you sort of, you sort of dress it up so that you look competitive, you, but you, you got to give her a chance and you got to let her win once in a while. But uh, yeah, you know, family, I feel different about it. It's not, it's, it's a dispute, you know. If you get into a dispute, and it's anybody, the tax people, anybody. If you're in a dispute, I have to win. And it's a, it's a burden, to be honest. Isn't that fascinating? I, I kind of half expected him to not give that answer about how he has to win at, at everything, you know, outside of family. Um, I sort of love that he did. <laughs> Yeah, well, it didn't surprise me at all. A, because that's how Reacher is. Yeah, yeah. And B, you know, I would imagine you need a fair bit of that in you to enjoy the longevity of success that Lee has enjoyed. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. Um, yes, such a fascinating character, which is why we had such a good time chatting to Lee Child and Heather Martin. So this concludes the end of part one, meaning... Part two will come next week. Or depending on when you listen to this, you might already be there if you've dragged your heels. But either way, there will be a second instalment of Lee Child and Heather Martin just underneath this one on your list. And we talk lots about Tom Cruise next time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tom Cruise and Lee's view of the Booker Prize as a Booker judge. Yeah. Right. Did you say you wanted to play Monopoly? And if I play you against, uh, against you at Monopoly, are you going to get super competitive and are we going to fall out? Uh, possibly, but it'll be fine because I'll win. <laughs> 